Welcome to OhiCast, where we pull back the curtain to explore all things music to satisfy musical appetites. All are welcome here, from newcomers to longtime music fans. On each episode, special guests help shine light on topics ranging from concert repertoire, music of today, to their very own Ojai experiences. I'm Thomas Kotcheff, a composer and pianist, and you may know me in the Ojai family as the on-air host of the Ojai Music Festival livestream. Today is our guide to listening to new music, specifically how to approach new pieces that may be unfamiliar to you. We'll be discussing things you can do before, during, and after the concert to help you further enjoy the experience of musical discovery. Before we get to our discussion today, I want to remind you that this year's Ojai Music Festival takes place September 16th through 19th, and you can visit ojaifestival.org for more information. Joining me later on in the show for this discussion will be musicologist Lance Bruner. But right now, we have my co-host of the Ojai Music Festival live stream, a terrific composer, currently on the faculty of the University of Southern California, and she is also, perhaps most importantly, a fellow Canadian. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Ojai cast, Veronica Krausis. So today we're talking about how to listen to a new piece of music, specifically one that you may be unfamiliar with. And I like to begin with this idea of having an open-minded approach. What do you think, Veronica? I think open-minded is always the best. Um, Often I think of listening to a piece of music by a friend that I don't know, and I'm much more open-minded than someone whose piece Who's, who I actually don't know. So when I go to a new music concert, I always try and put myself in the mind of, I know the person who wrote the music because then you're a little bit more um, ready to understand it and accept things. But also, you know, sometimes I, I have two different approaches. Sometimes I consciously don't read the program notes or do any research. It's sort of part of the mystery of discovering something completely new and unknown. And for me as a composer, I often do this, especially with operas, to see what's clear to the audience, what I would want to hear again or explore more or um, perhaps in in my own work do. So it's more of a selfish, um, not researching things. But then on the opposite hand, there's the idea of conscious preparation. And I read the program notes and I listen to the work if it's available or other works by the composers so I can help my understanding of what the composer's trying to do. And, you know, we all have those pieces that we can listen to ad infinitum and we never get tired of because there's always something new to discover or to re-enjoy. So the pre-listening research helps sort of facilitate that familiarity rather than sort of losing the mystery of the piece. Right. You know, one thing I think about with the concert hall specifically is that the audience oftentimes comes to the concert hall wanting to love everything they hear. But the reality is is that's not just that's not going to happen. And so I like to approach the concert hall um, like an art gallery. When you go to art gallery, you may love some pieces, you may hate some pieces, you may get, you know, scared by some, you may, you know, have joy from some, and that's all okay and all great. And and the way the general audience goes to the art gallery, that's their mindset, you know? And so I believe, come to the concert hall the same way. If there's five pieces on the show, say, you know what, if piece number one doesn't do it for me, piece number two is up next, I can't wait to hear it, and move on to the next one, and, and see how you feel, and, you know, and, and go from there. Yeah, it's... It's like food. Everyone doesn't like the same thing. And if everyone liked exactly the same thing, life would be really, really boring. For people like you and me, Veronica, 
we love the unknown. Like we go to the concert hall and we can't wait to hear the piece we don't know about, you know? And, and I'm wondering how do we, do we get from the old us and maybe for us, it's when we were children where we, where we, we need to know what's going on or we're not going to like it to where we are now. How to make that transition? I think it's a mindset. So I'm going to give a non-musical example. One year, someone took me to a movie that was supposed to be a romantic comedy. And we were going because it was a heat wave in Montreal. And the, the uh, movie theater was the only place that had air conditioning. And we got into this and I was expecting to see something schlocky that I wouldn't like. And Reservoir Dogs by Quentin Tarantino came on. So it was a complete shock. And for me, pleasant one. But the idea of um, learning how to adapt to things. So I think your art gallery uh, analogy is really worthwhile because, you know, when you go, you don't know what you're going to be expecting and you base your path or your viewing times based on what you think. But in a concert hall, maybe it's people feel trapped because they're sitting there and you can't close your ears. If you don't like to look at something, you can just turn away, but it's impossible to close your ears. So it's it's a slightly different um, experience, I think. But having that mindset, well, if you don't like it, then what do you do in the concert hall? Do you start (laughs) playing on your iPhone? Probably not. (laughs) Maybe listening to something that you don't like and say, gee, I wonder why I don't like this, but what about it do I like? What's the one thing I can find in it that actually intrigues me or... Or something. I remember Cecil Taylor in an interview once said, I was walking down Fifth Avenue and I looked up and on the, you know, 40th floor, there was a fuchsia colored awning and I went, wow. You know, so that idea of spotting, I don't remember, I don't remember if it was the 40th floor, but the idea of spotting this fuchsia colored awning amidst these, you know, downtown Manhattan buildings, finding one thing that maybe intrigues you, the way someone's playing or the sound of the piano or or the color of someone's shoes, you know, even little things like that. And it can make it much more enjoyable. Uh, One problem I think that um, the history of music has kind of made for us is that um, music has, like in the classical period, has oftentimes a call and response style of way of writing where you hear a phrase and you might be able to predict the next phrase. And so audience members have gotten in the habit of wanting to predict the next phrase of music or what will happen next. And I think you need to release that, that, that feeling, those thoughts. I, when I get into the concert hall for a world premiere, I feel like I am just completely submitting to the moment and the experience and whatever the, the, the composer and musician wants to give me is what I'm going to go with. And that mindset to begin, to begin with is important, I think. I think it deals with expectations too, what you were just saying that, If you go in assuming you're not going to like it, then you probably won't like it unless it's so fabulously amazing it's going to knock your socks off. But I think going in with the idea of um, it's almost like a Zen approach. You're just going to be there and sit on the on the stone listening to the breeze, you know, sort of thing that that really helps in um, sort of enabling yourself to to be able to listen to something new and possibly different. One of the brilliant things about Ojai is it's such a magical place to hear music that that alone already sort of puts you over the threshold of wanting to understand or having a really great association. Um, 
it's interesting when I was younger, when I was a piano student in Canada, <laughs> and, and every time, every year I'd finish my exams, we'd you know go to the music store to get the next Royal Conservatory of Music book for for the next year. And in that music store, um, the the salesperson gave me a set of forty fives. I'm totally dating myself here, but forty five records. It was a collection of portraits of Canadian composers, and I was so excited. I got them home. I put them on my dad's record player, and and I had no idea what. I was listening to. But it's not that I disliked it or, or liked it, but I was so intrigued by it because I didn't understand what was going on. But I kind of approached it like um, this sort of magical world of, of something yet to discover. You know, it's almost like jazz heads. You know, that if you go, oh, I like jazz, but, it, but if you really talk with someone who's a super hardcore jazz head, they can tell you names of people, the instruments, everything. And, and it just, it's such a huge world. It's like an iceberg. New music is like an iceberg. So you mentioned already this idea of preparing yourself ahead of time, getting background on a piece of music. And we actually, on episode one, we had um, Thomas May on, who um, writes the program notes for Ojai Festival each year. And I actually asked Thomas, I said, what do you recommend to people? Do you read the program notes? Do you not read the program notes? Do you come in fresh? Do you read during the concert? Like, and Or is it up to the, 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 the person, the, the, the audience member? What, what do you think? I don't know. I think it depends on sort of uh, the how you want to participate in a concert. And I think there's a continuum because it's like different moods. Some days you're ready to just sit back and let someone bring you everything. And then other times you want to go into that left side of your brain and completely analyze and be a really active part. I mean, not that you're going to jump up and start counting, but that you, that you're the the way that you're listening. And I think that there are two extremes and there's a whole continuum between those two. And I think it doesn't matter. I don't think there's a right answer to that. Right. Right. Um, so this idea about about doing some research or getting some context for a concert or a piece. Um, my best example of, of this comes from the 2019 Ojai Festival, uh, where they performed Rachmaninoff's Isle of the Dead, uh, which is a tone poem um, based on a painting. And the painting has uh, this uh, image of an island and a boat coming towards it with a coffin in it and a, a, white, a, a man in white robes and an oarsman. It's very kind of like um, dark and kind of an incredible painting. So I guess the first level of homework would be look at the painting. You know, like, you know, like, check it out, you know, or, but, you know, Rachmaninoff saying Isle of the Dead, that's already pretty descriptive. It gives you a lot. Now you have some more if you see the, if you see the painting. Now, the, the third level of it would be the fact that this piece was programmed on the Oliver Nussin tribute concert because it was one of Ollie Nussin's favorite pieces. So knowing that fact, now you're listening to the piece in another brand new context. You know, OK, you're listening to why did Ollie Nussin like this piece? You know, he loves the orchestration. He loves Rachmaninoff. And, and it just kind of brings all these extra elements and pieces of fabric into the listening experience. Um, why don't we play a little bit of that right now, just so the audience can hear a bit of Rachmaninoff's Isle of the Dead.
composers on the uh, festival this year is Debussy. But one of the pieces I'm thinking specifically of is his Sunken Cathedral Piano Prelude. So this piece, again, very well known, um, beautiful piece. Do you need to know what the Sunken Cathedral is about? No. But then you've got the legend where this cathedral every hundred years rises from the water and then goes down and you've got bells and you've got organ sounds being imitated. And um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful um, piano work. But... Interestingly, from what you just said about Rachmaninoff's Isle of the Dead, it was sort of in reverse. Uh, the graphic artist M.C. Escher was so inspired by Debussy's prelude that in the early 1900s, he did a woodcut of the... Um, the uh, uh, sunken cathedral. So that worked in reverse. So it's not only art that inspires music, it can work the other way around. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. I like that. My last question for you, Veronica... Um, what are you looking forward to the most this year coming to Ojai? It could be musical, it could just be being in Ojai. What are you looking forward to the most about this year's festival? I think I'm going to cry again when I get to the festival. <laughs> my first concert that I, I was at, I, I literally cried. It wasn't even my piece. It was a good piece, but I just, I think the idea of being together with people will be just so amazing. But again, as I said, I, I'm really looking forward to Rhiannon Giddens and Francisco Turisi's concert because the, what they've done together, I believe, over the course of, 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 of the plague, is they've um, written about isolation. So it creates such an intimacy between the two of them. And then it, I think being at Ojai in that space, we'll be able to share that intimacy. And that's, that's what I'm really looking forward to. I know for me personally, I'm looking forward to hanging out in the park um, with the other artists, with the patrons, with the beer garden. And, you know, um, so much of being at Ojai is being part of a community and being part of like this this place where you hang out with your favorite musicians and your favorite audience members. So that's what I'm looking forward to the most. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Veronica. And we look forward to seeing you on the Ojai Festival live stream broadcast starting September 16th online. Yay, hooray, can't wait. Joining us now to continue our discussion is a professor of music history at the University of Kentucky. I'd like to welcome musicologist Lance Bruner to the Ojai cast. Thank you so much. So today, Lance, we're talking about an episode about a guide to listening to new music, adventurous music, unfamiliar music. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I'd like to start the way I start my classes and actually uh, many talks, and that is this way. This is a Japanese temple gong that um, 
a bull gong that, like all gongs, are designed uh, with a, a long decay. And I found that it's a really good way to bring people into listening, simply by connecting to the sound and following it into silence. It's a really a kind of cleansing of our oral capacities. And I I've did this once with a group of young people, children actually, to if they could uh, listen to the to the sound of the gong. So these are hyperactive children, <laughs> and. Uh, they could make a game out of it, you know, by listening, listening, and then get softer and softer, and then it's, there it is, there it is, you know, and then I hit it again, and uh, anyway, it, it was a way that they could concentrate and, and be present. Uh, it was funny because I thought it was a little bit of a waste of time, what I was doing, and the teacher said, uh, where do I get one of those gongs? <laughs> this is the best they've ever been. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> But I've used it ever since. So when I, when I come into a class, for example, to teach a class, students come in often uh, walking across the campus or, you know, busy talking to friends, and they're really not present for uh, some good minutes, actually, if, if, if that's lucky. But uh, I almost have them trained just by sounding the gong and connecting to the sound until it goes into silence. It's a very good way to begin and to end, actually. Because that's what I'd like to talk about, as you know. I, I, um, I also am a meditation teacher, and I, um, as a teacher of anything, uh, we have to be concerned with attention and sharpening our capacity to attend and be present. And um, I think yeah. Yeah. Uh, that music can be um, not just something uh, enjoyable, or but but a real practice of practice of listening. Right. I think that, you know, we think so much about what to listen for. Like we always want context. We want this, we want that. But really that kind of shows us that we're just here for sounds and we're here to listen and not to think too hard about it at at its base level. It's just listening. Yes. It's about listening and connecting to the sound. And um, one of the things I find is that people often feel like they uh, they feel intimidated if they uh, haven't studied music and uh, that there's something that they should be hearing that maybe that they don't understand. And I find that really uh, kind of sad um, because um, I think that studying music in a way c- can distance ourselves from really deep listening. In fact, I'm in the middle of giving uh, an entrance exam for graduate students on um oral theory, listening to intervals and being able to uh, transcribe music from just from the sound of it. But that really doesn't teach listening. So then how would you recommend that an audience member maintains that just basic, open-minded listening approach to hearing a new piece of music? Well, I think uh, I think there are two things uh, that are kind of preliminary to that or that we could consider is uh, why we listen to music and how we listen to music. And it's something I think music is so omnipresent, you know, I mean, everybody's tuned in, you know, or it's everywhere, right? And uh, so in a way it's kind of cheapened and um, it's, uh, first place, hearing, the ability to hear any or any of the other senses is a gift. You know, we don't, we didn't earn 
our ability to hear or see or taste or touch and so forth. It's, it's a gift, it's an endowment that we take for granted, right? And uh, to realize that that's a gift, I think uh, we can be grateful for those senses. And often we're not grateful for those things until they're threatened or till we lose them. Um, and um, uh, I think most people listen to music uh, sometimes as a, as wallpaper, you know, as as an environment to relax and so forth, and uh, or while doing something else, you know. It's um, so I would encourage people to to make it a kind of practice and say just to really listen, and really listening means, in this sense, connecting with the sound moment to moment. So in a meditation practice, for example, if you're working with your breath, body and breath, you, of course, your mind uh, wanders off to any any number of directions and stories and so forth. And uh, as soon as you realize that, you can come back, oh, I'm breathing. Another reason to be grateful. Um, you can use uh, sound as a point of reference, as a, um, you know, a way to come back to the present moment. And that... I really think that that's not done so much as a practice. So I kind of want to encourage people to do that. Take five minutes, you know, take... take uh, the New York Times has these wonderful uh, pieces, five minutes that will make you love uh, violins, sopranos. The recent one is Stravinsky. They're really, they're really wonderful um, um, features because they, they choose maybe 15, even 20 people to choose their favorite five minutes of, of this this type of music or these these type of singers and, and uh, so it's a really good introduction if you could just take one of those or a couple of them and just come back to the sound just like you did with the gong uh, it's actually kind of transformative because it clears the mind it it frees you from hope and fear concerns about the the bad news of the day or uh, all the things that we have to do it's a kind of healthy uh, almost healing of that. And then secondly, um, um, I think there could be a sense of adventure, you know, that people somehow don't want to risk being uncomfortable or not knowing. And um, I think that that's something that you can switch and just be, take, uh, what do say, take the risk of listening to something uh, that you don't know, you know, that, and then I guess it has to do with purpose as well. But um, that I, I liked the term adventurous listening. You know, it's an adventure, and um, it's inter The Ojai Festival is a wonderful festival. You know that the the, the guest artists uh, are well spectacular, uh, and uh, and they choose a very interesting mix of music. So the the seminar I, I taught uh, two years ago, the 2019 festival, was based on the programming, and uh, I called it. Uh, adventurous listening, new music from 1899 to the present. Why? Well, is music in 1899 new? Uh, well, obviously it was new at the time, you know, and uh, many of those pieces are quite challenging. I think it was Frickler de Nacht that they did was 1899. and um, But I also threw in a Haydn symphony, and that the notion that even a piece that you know quite well or have heard many times you can come with fresh ears. You can hear it anew. And that's that by connecting to the sound. And it's interesting because uh, things change. I mean, if you're listening to the same recording, uh, 
you know, you're not the same person that you were the last time you heard it, even if it was yesterday. And um, then it becomes exciting, really. You know, and I wonder how, you know, some of I listen to the Goldberg Variations often, and I, I must have listened, I don't know, a thousand times, five thousand times, and oh my God, what, what a wonderful piece! I mean, obviously, great piece, but but uh, I bring my listening to that as just such a gift. So. Um, yeah, and I, I, one of the things I noticed, interestingly, is that um, I noticed that audiences are much more um, attuned or capable of listening to dissonant music, that is, music that's uh, a little bit harsh, with voices. There's a number of composers, even high school uh, choirs do music that's quite dissonant, and uh, for some reason it's more challenging with, with just instruments, I think. And one of the pieces I I, um, I like to introduce people to is one called Immortal Bach. Um, and um, uh, it's by uh, Newt Neistat, as a Norwegian composer who lived to almost 100, actually. He died in, in 2014. And um, he uh, took part of a Bach uh, um, chorale setting, Come Suse Tod, or Come... Come Sweet Death, and uh, he actually harmonized it in a way, and uh, very cleverly he had the different parts of the choir move in different, um, at different speeds and different tempos. And uh, so what happens, it starts with normal chords, familiar chords, major or minor, and, um, and then begins to blur into this sound mass that's um, extraordinary, right? And then uh, the first group of singers waits till the other singers get <laughs> come along, so it moves from consonants or a, you know a consonant sound, a familiar sound, into this fog of rich dissonance and overtones, and then goes back. So I think you can play this. Yeah, let's let's put a clip of that on right now and uh, listen for that. Friends coming down from Vancouver, and uh, it, it, this is, I think, uh, about almost ten years ago, maybe maybe nine years ago. And the Kentucky Bach Choir uh, was doing a program. This is a very creative um, uh, director of it, uh, and uh, the program was called "Sing a New Song," and he um, uh, programmed. Uh, an older version of a song or a setting of a text, say from the Renaissance or the Baroque, with a new setting. So he juxtaposed the two in ways that were, were really illuminating. And uh, this piece that you just heard, Immortal Bach, uh, came on and 
um, I, sh I should say it was at the First Presbyterian Church in Lexington, which has really remarkable acoustics. And we felt that our molecules had been rearranged. <laughs> it was such an extraordinary experience. We looked at one another and just thought, how is this possible? You know, and um, um, so that's another thing to consider. You know, if you're listening with AirPods or, or headphones or in a in a living room or in a concert hall or walking down the street, the acoustics, the environment are really going to change the experience. And uh, yeah, I think it's important to hear live music, you know, uh, as, as it's being produced and uh, particularly in, in live environments. But um, anyway, that was, that was an extraordinary piece. And I think if, if, you, uh, if your listeners were connecting to the sound, I think could feel maybe considerably different after hearing, um, hearing that and staying with it. It sort of creates a place of, of uh, silence or tranquility. I'm wondering, because me and Veronica were talking about this previously, is from your recommendations, what are things you can do before, during, and after the concert when you're heading into a, a performance with an unfamiliar piece, and let's just put it, be specific, a new world premiere? What can you do to enhance your listening experience? Good question. And that's kind of a dilemma in a way. You know, I've, I've worked as music critic for some years. And, uh, of course, I wanted to be super prepared to, to, to know the pieces and uh, something in the background because I was going to be writing about it in public. And uh, that's a responsibility. And listening in a way of, uh, like, judging. Is this a good performance? You know, what... What could I say about it? So in other words, I was doing a lot of thinking about the piece, you know, because, well, just the same as if you perform it, you know, as you, your performance, you're concerned about the technical aspects of it and, so, and the phrasing and so forth. Um, so that's one thing you could do. You could know more about it. But what does knowing a piece mean? You know, what does... Does that have to do with... Uh, Understanding the date of the composer, or the you know the circumstances it was written, or if there's a program to it, um, or getting familiar by just pure listening. So, I would play with it. Um, for those of you who are adventurous enough to come to, to new music premieres and so forth, uh, you can prepare by uh, uh, listening now. Uh, to pieces by the same composer or the same uh, the same ensemble and get more familiar with it, um, or you could come in fresh, you know. And so maybe sometimes it's it's better to find your place, you know, whether you whether you're more cognitive or more, uh, you know, you're an auditory learner, uh, more kinesthetic to actually feel the, the music and. I, I would like and encourage people to be more confident about their listening. You know, I, I arranged for a concert one time <clears throat> at a local space here uh, with a contemporary composer. It was our, <clears throat> our string, uh, faculty string quartet, and uh, it was a new piece, uh, long and uh, challenging in many ways. And the, the violist hurt her back. She was coming from Cincinnati and just said, I, I, can't, I really can't come. And um, so the other well, three members said, "Well, we'll put, we'll, we'll get something together. You know, we'll, 
we'll think of something. You know, we won't do the quartet, obviously. And they came and they did some lighter pieces, uh, an arrangement, I think, by Guillaume Kramer of, of uh, the Bach Double Concerto. And they're, they're playing along, so with the cello and two violins, and they're playing along. And all of a sudden, they kick the rhythm into a kind of a bluegrass. And everybody laughed. Everybody roared. Everybody got the joke. So you can't tell me that people didn't understand the music. You know, what they lacked probably was a technical vocabulary and understanding of, of just how, how that was done through syncopation or through manipulating the rhythms. Um, they got the musical joke. And um, so I think people often feel uh, that they need to know more to experience it directly. And it works both ways, I think. You know, otherwise, uh, we'd, we'd throw out academic learning <laughs> in general. That that um, understanding something about it can deepen your experience. Um, having more experience in listening to the same type of music, getting familiar with it, but also just uh, maybe dropping that when uh, doing background work. Um, you know, I, I uh, heard uh, Ann Patchett talk about interviewing uh, writers uh, when they uh, write a new novel or something. And she learned from Alan Alda that, you know, you should do your homework, get your cards ready, you know, all the questions that you want, and then throw them out before, <laughs> before you go on. Because it, it allows something to happen spontaneously, prepared but then uh, open to, to the flow of what's happening. And that, I think that involves uh, developing a little confidence. So I, I want to encourage your listeners to be confident <laughs> and to listen uh, as, um, well, as kind of practice, as kind of fun practice of connecting with the sound, connecting with uh, the sensations in the body that arise because of that, maybe aversion to dissonance or release uh, in with certain melodic passages and so forth without the need to uh, explain technically or the guilt of not having uh, studied, studied music technically. Thank you for being here, Lance. Is there anything else you want to add or, or mention? No, I'm just very grateful to have this opportunity. I love, uh, you know, I, I think uh, that sense that music is a gift that's, that keeps giving you know, even uh, pieces that we love and, as I say, listen to the Goldberg Variations or any, any number of pieces that just, uh, they feel like my vitamins, you know, like in the morning. Take your vitamin G, Goldberg. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lance, and we appreciate you coming on today and uh, for joining us. Thank you. More information on the composers, artists, and music discussed today can be found at ojifestival.org. You can follow the Ojai Music Festival on social media at Ojai Festivals, and you can follow me at Thomas Kotcheff. Come back for episode four, where I'll be joined by percussionists Steve Schick and Matthew Duvall of 8th Blackbird. We'll be discussing their Ojai Festival memories and talking about the storied history of the Ojai Music Festival. See you then. <laughs>